0: Greetings, I'm Dave Gilmore, and this is Design Intelligence. We're at the Law Offices of Venable in Washington, D.C., as part of our ongoing series, Demystifying the Infrastructure Bill. And today, we're speaking with the Honorable James H. Burnley IV and James D. Riley. Jim Burnley served as the U.S. Secretary of Transportation from 1987 to 1989 and is one of the nation's foremost authorities on transportation law and policy. Jim Riley is the former chief of staff for Senator Tom Carper and a skilled strategist who is highly regarded for his ability to work with both sides of the aisle to pass key legislation in Congress. We're going to talk with them about what this bill includes, the foreign relations impact of the bill, and the opportunities and challenges that could impact the built environment industry and the U.S. economy at large.
1: Welcome to this edition of This is Design Intelligence, conversations with leadership voices in the built environment.
0: Well, I'm glad we're together. Thanks for doing this. You know, we've been talking about this infrastructure bill, um, I'll call it the physical infrastructure bill that has been recently passed. And, you know, when you read about all that's included in it, there's a lot going on there and it's been somewhat, uh, I think, you know, pieced and parted out, you know, when bridges and roads and public transit and, and broadband. And it's interesting that the, uh, the idea of climate resiliency was placed into that piece as well. Uh, the idea of, of cleanup that needs to be done on brownfields and other wasteful areas and then improvements to our electrical grid which is absolutely critical as we've watched some of the failures of that as well as the vulnerabilities and our water. And what are we doing with water? And so when we look at this big infrastructure bill as normal humans who are public people not involved in this world at all, how should we be thinking about it? Is it, is it enough money? Is it, is it too much money? I often find that too much money creates
2: lots of problems. I think it's evolutionary in the eyes of the folks who earn their livings through uh, constructing and managing infrastructure. There's never enough money. And uh, that is true of most sectors of our economy. So it's not unique. This, for surface transportation, highways, and transit, does two very important things. And one of them in, in the press coverage has often been overlooked. It reauthorizes the Highway Trust Fund and the programs that are traditionally funded through that mechanism for five years. We're spending, just on the highway side, 45 to $46 billion a year. So it continues and increases that stream of funding that the U.S. Department of Transportation will make available through grant programs that are long-established to states and cities okay. and regional authorities. Do you have any
0: idea what the increase from 45 to something else will be? The
2: increase uh, in percentage terms is about 29% oh, over 10 years. Okay. Um, but that's the that's the add-on. Mm-hmm. The, the five-year plan is a more incremental plan and would get us up in, by the the fifth year into the $53, $54 billion a year category. And then, again, we have this overlay that's... A, in, in dollar terms it's over 100 billion for transit it's almost 350 billion for highways and when you score that as the congressional budget office does over 10 years that's a 29 percent bump and that's very significant obviously mm-hmm. so the very important fact first and foremost is getting that five-year reauthorization of existing programs because congress often really struggles to do the multi-year extension of those programs. I mean, for example, in the last year, we've had a one-year extension. There have been times in the last decade when we've had extensions of weeks or a couple of months. That is incredibly disruptive on every level. Well, I don't actually know. How do you plan? You, when can't you're only, plan. Yeah, right. uh, you have states and you have transit authorities and the like uh, expecting the flow of funds, uh, but then suddenly you have this very short window and legally, uh, the U S department of transportation, federal highway administration, federal transit administration can't give them the money beyond what would be allocated pro rata over weeks or months, whatever Congress has done. So five years sounds very sort of mundane. It's very important. Then you have the overlay of the additional funding I mentioned, uh, Mm -hmm. that is a one-time event in the sense that it's it's not a part of this traditional highway trust funded set of programs.
0: Okay. It's discretionary?
2: It's discretionary. Okay. And Congress would have to come back if it wished to do that again and, and legislate again. Um, and that's what's gotten all this the press coverage is the, the and again, it's significant. I mean, again, you, you bump anything up almost a third, it's significant. But it's, it's a both-and story in terms of what Congress did.
0: Is there a time frame on the discretionary spend?
2: Uh, in theory, there is. I mean, each year there's a additional congressional process that they create something called an obligation limitation ceiling that sort of governs how much of the multi-year reauthorization ought to go out that year. Um, but at this point, the primary governor is... The capacity of the U.S. Department of Transportation, the literal ability of the people who work there to get the money out. Now, the money coming through the traditional highway trust fund mechanism, they know how to do that. But they've got new programs, um, a lot of them not related to transportation infrastructure. There are other parts of the government will have to deal with. But there are new programs authorized that are specific pots of money for specific kinds of programs that DOT has to stand up. And the first thing they've got to do um, is seek public input, which they've just done in the last few days. They've started requesting such input. Then they've got to write criteria for grants. And the the fundamental fact about all this is that uh, we have not, in this legislation, done anything radical in terms of the relationship between the federal government and states and transit authorities and and other transportation governance bodies on the local level. The money, the decision about how the money will be ultimately spent is going to be made on the state and local level, and they still have to come in and apply to the feds. Now, they have to meet program criteria established on the federal level. And again, with these new smaller pots of money compared to the traditional flow through the Highway Trust Fund, they've got to wait until those criteria are published. And they've got to have a grant application process stood up for these different little pots of money. So the truth is that 29% bump really is going to take quite a while to actually make its way out. Mm-hmm. Even with everybody in the executive branch working hard to turn the spigot on, in effect, it's not going to happen overnight. And it, and then we've got this tension um, that is created through policies of the Biden administration between a desire to get that money out and a desire to greatly tighten the environmental review process. We'll just have to see how that plays out in terms of the velocity with which the grants get made.
0: So, it, you know, it sounds
2: great, but at the end of the day, if
0: you don't have the, using the word infrastructure again, if you don't have the administrative infrastructure in place to handle all of this mechanism, then you're just going to you're just going to extend the problem. And so it sounds to me just in, in that illustration of the DOT just not having, it just doesn't have the, I'll call it the manpower, uh, to be able to pull all of that off. That's right? a very
2: important point because the Deputy Secretary of Transportation, a very able woman named Polly Trottenberg, said the other day that the Department of Transportation needs to hire over a, th- a thousand additional people to help do this. Well, you you don't hire federal employees in days or even weeks, typically, um, months at a minimum. And so that is a very important point that, again, the popular press really pays no attention to. No, but no, of course not. If you don't have enough human beings to figure all this out, particularly as to this 29% bump, um, and the new programs that are a part of that, then the money doesn't move.
0: So uh, maybe it's an in the weeds question, but you have this, these giant, this giant volume of money. Did somebody up on the hill contemplate that it might take a thousand new employees? And if it did, does part of that pot go to paying for those thousand new employees, or is that out of something else?
2: I followed the debate in Congress closely. I don't recall seeing a single reference to the need to hire new employees. Um, and it will be necessary for Congress to appropriate in the annual appropriations process, additional funds to pay those people mm-hmm. if, mm-hmm. if they want them to actually show up for work. So uh, the answer to your question is no, I don't think they thought very much about that. Um, but they will soon, uh, next year, I'm sure start having hearings, uh, calling up the leadership of DOT, uh, putting pressure on them to get the money out faster. And the leadership will say, okay, as, as you appropriate the funds to make sure we can hire the additional people we need, then we'll get the money out faster. Right. So I think that's a conversation that will occur after the first of the year, most yeah. likely. Yeah. Very interesting. You know,
0: that this is such a massive government and it's a powerful government, but at the end of the day, it takes individual human beings to make it work. The, these are the cogs in the wheel and it's Just extraordinary, the the level of conversation. You know, many, many years ago, as we all know from our history, after World War II, the rebuild Europe stuff was put in together, commonly referred to as the Marshall Plan, right? And it really was responsible for the rebuilding of Europe and the rebuilding of those economies, even our enemies, uh, where we put money into both Germany and Italy. And it really raised the bar for everyone, and it created a new western strength that it was unprecedented for many many decades under china's belt and road initiative you know they're they're building out infrastructure or attempting to across a wide span of of territory i think over 70 countries and organizations was their plan to expand and to scale chinese influence and interest in their space when we look at a domestic spending bill like this of uh, north of a trillion dollars, even though none of it is is allocated for outside our country, isn't there a splash factor? In, in other words, uh, I guess I believe as the U.S. goes, so goes most of the world. Even if they resent us, they, they still go, uh, follow. Um, you can see that in the type of work that we've done around the world with um, with monetary policy, and you'll see the central banks start to follow, with commerce, um, with technology, et cetera, et cetera. It would seem like this massive spending bill might trigger some other allocations of spending in other parts of the world that would have direct foreign relation impact, positive foreign relation impact to the United States. Do you have any thoughts on that, uh, Jim?
3: David, I think that there will be pieces in the bill where we are going to be viewed as leaders. There are pieces in the bill where I think legitimately people could say we are just catching up, partly because we've let some things in the U.S. linger maybe too long. Mm -hmm. I I think about um, ports and and waterways is something where some countries have gone ahead of us. They've moved their transportation or maintained their systems, uh, and that hasn't occurred here. So the funds that are in the bill might just help us come up to their level. On the other side, I think the U.S. remains a leader, and this will help us even go further, on on safety, on transportation safety. Um, you know, countries around the world look to what is the FAA standard mm-hmm. and or the NHTSA standard and other places to, for transportation. A- another area that I'll be watching closely, and you mentioned um, resiliency, but th- that is a significant new add mm-hmm. to This idea of physical infrastructure at least at the scale that we're seeing in this bill and whether the us i think we will look to other countries for lessons but we also have opportunity and resources here to do things that no one else has done and that is an area where i think we will come to be seen as a leader and impact other countries as they're making decisions down the road because choosing to spend on resiliency is is not the first penny you would spend Mm
1: -hmm. Uh, no
3: but so many countries may not have that option and as a wealthy country as a leader we choose to spend some money on the future which is really what resiliency is all about
0: Mm -hmm.
3: i think others will look
0: to us down the road Jim Burnley, you've watched, you know, massive spending bills, nothing of this consequence in your decades of service. Have we seen what I was talking about, a a like for like in other nations when we've made major moves, particularly in transportation?
2: Yes and no, I think is the answer. Okay. Um, And let me take that uh, and sort of turn it upside down. A great many people who are fans of passenger rail in the U.S. point to other countries in Europe and point to China and say that somehow the U.S. is falling behind because we are not building out what is usually referred to broadly as high-speed rail Mm -hmm. to the extent uh, those countries are. Um, But if you do a cost-benefit analysis of how you spend money on passenger rail— and if you take into account, uh, particularly when you're looking at Europe, the differences in distances between one major metropolitan area and another, um, then the picture is much more complicated in terms of what makes sense for the U.S. And one of the things this bill does uh, is to give Amtrak over $30 billion on a one-time basis uh that uh, Amtrak, as I understand it, plans to use, first and foremost, to upgrade its existing system. The, the part of the Amtrak system that, that works best by every indicator you might look at is the Northeast Corridor mm-hmm. in terms of the number of passengers it carries, uh, the beneficial aspects of getting people off uh, highly congested highways mm-hmm. from here to Philadelphia to New York to Boston. So this will permit Amtrak to make uh, some uh, long-plan, much-needed upgrades uh, in the Northeast Corridor, first and foremost. And I think most folks would say, that makes sense. Some of the money will go to other uh, aspects of the Amtrak system, most certainly. But that's very different from saying, we're going to go build a greenfield, high-speed rail connection between Salt Lake City and Denver for example. So, there are areas in which the U.S. does lead, as Jim was saying, and, and this bill will create further examples of that. But on the other hand, um, I think Congress, particularly when it comes to intercity passenger rail, made, made a choice. And the choice was to trust to the existing leadership at Amtrak most of the responsibility for the additional funding for intercity passenger rail that mm-hmm. they've included in the bill. And and we're not, therefore, trying to emulate Western Europe or trying to emulate the Chinese as the intercity passenger rail in any sort of real-world sense.
0: You know, I look to the future, um, and we're watching it in other parts of the world. We're even watching it in very limited, very almost piloted way in the United States, and that's this idea of driverless vehicles, right? But even more importantly are driverless trucks that are becoming a, a part of our future. And it's I would like to say it's the distant future, but it's not. It's the near to intermediate future where that will be occurring, where freight will be moved, um, people-less for all intents and purposes. And we certainly have watched what's happening in the United States supply chain problem. Uh, so many of the ships being backed up in some of our ports. These container ships, they can't move them because we don't have enough truck drivers. We don't. We can't. Can't move the stuff. Right at the end of the day, when we're talking about massive money being put for transportation and particularly for highways and bridges and tunnels all of these things do you think that it's contemplated in the design and or redesign of some of these routes this idea of driverless freight and what that will mean because that would have a significant design change to how this money would be spent you know, going forward, because uh, these driverless vehicles require not only sensors in the road, they c- require certain types of clearances up above to follow the satellites and to manage uh, across straight and smart routes.
2: Any thinking around any of that? Well, it was a lot of thinking, um, a lot of a lot of experimentation. And the technology, in my mind, is mature. The, what you're talking about is a vision where as you said, you have road sensors and the the trucks do not have human beings in the cabs and they can be loaded and then they can go without a human in the cab all the way to where the freight is to be unloaded. That is some ways off. First and foremost, not because of technology, but because of the fact that uh, the other people driving on those roads (laughs) have to be willing to accept sharing the road with those vehicles. And that is a problem that the folks who are working on this are certainly mindful of, but there are technologies today that are being experimented with in the trucking industry. And I mean, one concept that's been around several years now is a two or three truck convoy, Mm -hmm. where there may be a driver in the first truck, but the second and third trucks either have a driver that's just monitoring or don't have a driver at all. But again, then you have to get those they share the roads with to uh, be willing to accept that. And you get into the safety issues, Jim noted, where a world leader with NHTSA's work and the National Highway Traffic Safety Administration is what NHTSA stands for um, on on highway safety. One of the things you have to do is, is figure out how to keep drivers from trying to squeeze in between truck two and truck three. I mean, there are these real world kind of practical issues that, again, very bright people are working on as we are having this discussion. But I think that is going to simply have to evolve. I, I don't think the federal government, federal government can louse it up mm-hmm. with policies that, in sure. effect, prohibit it. I don't think the federal government, on the other hand, has the ability to make it happen more quickly, other than by listening to the industry, by taking into account the problems of other drivers, sharing the roads, and edu- driver education. Um, but that's a, an iterative process, really when you think about it. And this, I think that's the way it's going to play out, most likely. The
0: intersection of FAA and DOT is starting to become a reality when we talk about flying cabs, right? And and this kind of idea. Um, I was privy to uh, uh, the front end of a study being held in Los Angeles. The FAA was doing about, uh, along the 405, if you know what I'm talking about, the major north-south route, about what would it mean to create flying cab routes that ran along that space. And do we see in a future picture, not 50 or 100 years from now, but in maybe our lifetime, where these kind of things become reality, very much like we were just talking about driverless vehicles or freight, is that something that is possible in the next 20 or 25 years?
2: Well, again, the technology exists today. Uh, There are, are people investing significant capital in developing it, The trick will be on the safety side, the air traffic control system Mm -hmm, necessary mm -hmm. for low-altitude operations of that kind. And that is an issue the FAA is very focused on and has been for years, but it's still sorting it out when it comes to drones. Um, Right. Everybody in the uh, drone community agrees they need an air traffic control system that handles low-altitude flights, that provides appropriate separation from passenger aircraft cargo aircraft of the traditional sort and everybody has agreed for quite a few years now that we need such a system the only problem is we don't have it yet so it's again it's it's iterative um it's in fits and starts the fa leadership is working on it there is an advisory group working on it at the faa but it ultimately will take Congress I'm sure uh, making additional funding available to, to make it a reality and it's it's some years off so it's not the it's not the technology of the devices no. No. that will be the impediment to actually implementing mm-hmm. it's having the safety system in place to make it feasible.
3: And I would add going back to the infrastructure bill, how it addresses these questions, it, the legislation and the process we often see for legislation is a follower, not a leader, more often than not. So right. those two examples we just discussed, the autonomous vehicles or flying vehicles, are down the road. no pun intended. and the the legislation we've just passed is is more of a today. The bulk of it is talking about what's happening today. How mm-hmm. do we keep our current infrastructure? and maybe make it a little bit better. So I think that if we were sitting here 10 years from now, we'd be likely to have a a bill that is in Congress looking at how do we adapt the roads for autonomous vehicles. Whereas today, I think the autonomous vehicle manufacturers are building their equipment to fit today's roads as much as anything. Mm -hmm. There are a few pilots in, I know in Texas, FedEx is running a 40-mile delivery route today uh, with a, fully autonomous vehicle and uh, you know so in these small scale tests are underway and i think that that will inform congress that will inform the next administration as to how to bring the federal policies in line with what corporations and technology have brought us
1: we hope you're enjoying this edition of this is design intelligence The Design Futures Council is a division of design intelligence and comprises of professional firms and schools selected by the executive leadership of the DFC for outstanding contributions to design, engineering, construction, development, and design education. To learn more, go to designfuturescouncil.com. And now, back to our program.
2: The question is, what does this mean for the private sector? and particularly for those who build things. And it's obviously good news on a fundamental level when there's more money in the pipeline. There will be frustrations about getting it out the other end of the pipeline, but that will happen eventually over the next several years. Um, But uh, additionally, there are existing programs that uh, many of the major players in the infrastructure community are already familiar with and, and are in. With, um, I mean, for example, there's a program uh, known as TIFIA that's been in place over at DOT for gosh, close to 20 years, which is a credit guarantee program. And the program has, uh, over the years, gotten permission from Congress to do guarantees that have generated over $36 billion in credit instruments of various kinds being issued, which uh, DOT says. Supports more than 123 billion dollars in infrastructure investment by the private sector. So it's those programs are already in place; they're working, they will continue, and the way in which the U.S. has traditionally being since World War II handled surface transportation investment on the federal level, I think, is unchanged fundamentally. But there are these programs like this that have been around for a while that are could be viewed as kind of niche programs, which are very, very important in terms of the leverage, um, in terms of uh, permitting the private sector to come forward with good ideas and test them um, in terms of financing. So I think part of what will happen uh, in the next few years is that there will be a lot of frustration about getting all this money that's just been uh, approved by Congress out the other end of the pipeline. But the, but the existing programs will will march along. And yes, there will be a lot of sorting out to be done about what resiliency really means and, and which there are some little pots of money. Uh, DOT already had some pots of money of a few hundred million or uh, a billion here or there that Congress usually reappropriates for every year. Um, now they've got a little more of that. To play with and so they've got some flexibility where they can they can look at a lot of new ideas from the infrastructure world but for the the more proactive energetic leadership in the infrastructure community on the private side um there there have been opportunities now they're going to be more opportunities at the margin to come to the federal government and say this project makes sense and it may not fit one of your pigeonholes but we'd like to work with you to figure out whether we can use TIFIA funds for, it, whether whether it fits the criteria for what used to be called TIGER grants that are now called RAISE grants. And and so those are opportunities that, that I think a lot of folks who may be focused on all this money that's coming out the pipeline need to stay focused on. You know, and to the extent they're not already thinking about it, they need to think about it because one of the things that permits is that you can you can put together um, a project with at least substantial private financing and move it faster. You still got to get through the environmental hurdles, and those are changing as I mentioned before. But nonetheless, there are safety valves there, even while DOT is trying to figure out the grant criteria mm-hmm. and hire the mm-hmm. thousand plus people and all that. I, I think it's
3: worth asking how how will this bill be looked at five years from now as different from the previous ones and what what is new what what has brought a new opportunity to the community and and as jim said that much of this is an extension of current law uh, but that third or so boost is i think what people will be measuring and and is worth discussion what feels new here is the greater attention to energy issues as they impact the hard infrastructure be that the actual energy we're using there's a significant chapter in this bill on the electric grid, but it's not just a wholesale expansion of the grid. It's doing it, it's attempting to do it in a way that is um, more resilient to the threats and challenges that the grids have faced or might be more useful for delivering low carbon energy from its production to its use. We already mentioned the resiliency components there. I think those will be real opportunities. There's a lot of a lot of learning that needs to happen there about what actually works. I mean, we sit here in Washington, D.C., and, I, and today I drove through the, the tidal barrier that cuts across the National Mall, which most people may not even know is there, but you know, recently there was a story about the risk to the archives of the Smithsonian, which sit here on the Mall and would be flooded. So w- what we're seeing here in D.C. might happen in other towns, and and that opportunity for... The construction, design, engineering world to think about what does this unleash, I think, is something I'm, I'm curious what we'll say in five years.
0: Yeah, I, I, we get excited about that because, you know, uh, studies very clear for every dollar spent on legitimate infrastructure, there's at minimum $2 and as much as $6 uh, spent and mostly in the private space on the renewal of buildings and uh, shops and restaurants and, you know, commerce and all those wonderful things. So you see this boulder, not a pebble, but this boulder being dropped in the pond can create such a long-term positive economic result for the United States. It's, it's very, very powerful to us and uh, of course many of the members of the design futures council which is a part of design intelligence are are global in nature they practice all over the world in architecture and engineering uh, primarily and thus my earlier question about does this have do you see this having uh, international or foreign relations based impact because of course they're focused on that as well will this trigger other spending and other places we know uh, we spend a lot of time in the united kingdom now there's a place that needs an infrastructure update you know just like we do in new york city kind of thing and so there's many places that are we're behind but at the end of the day i think we're making some good decisions about spending the question is is like you said earlier how will we be judged five or ten years from now in all of this were involved in some pretty deep discussions on the West Coast of the United States. In California, where over the last 60, 70 years, many communities were created and developed in really high-end properties that cost an absolute arm and a leg to live in them, that were built for the moment. And they had no longer-term view. And had they looked past a 20-year horizon to a 50-year horizon, they might have realized Oh, the world is changing, and I would have stepped back that property from the ocean, uh, you know, quite a bit, and elevated it in some way. And so, a longer-term view around infrastructure is absolutely critical. And I'm just wondering: Are we in our short sprints of approving this type of thing, and then in the long runs of spending this kind of thing? Who's actually looking out? to the 50-year horizon to help us think. We just talked about autonomous vehicles. Uh, if, we're, if we're designing our highways for current state without a consciousness that it will require us to do something different in the future, then we will have missed the opportunity. It'll end up costing us double to do it. You know, you think about in parts of Europe, there are dedicated highways for freight. Passenger vehicles don't get on there, so they don't have to worry about the human interference of people not wanting to cooperate.
2: I guess the question comes down are we thinking that way? (laughs) No, (laughs) Um, nor will we. I mean, we are such an affluent society that, and our urban areas are in particular affluent and uh, happily in recent years have have thrived more years than not in terms of economic growth. So uh, suppose, and, and there have been proposals in the U.S. to build dedicated freight lines. So suppose you want to do that. Well, you can probably do that through deserts out west with, you know, you'll still have to deal with the Department of Interior, perhaps, or endangered species issues and the like. But how do you do that in, in New, the New York City uh, metropolitan area or in this metropolitan area, Washington, mm-hmm. D.C.? Um, and yes, there are some efficiencies to be gained if you can do it on certain routes between major metropolitan areas, but we're past the point, I think, as a country where you can simply do an overlay of a whole new kind of transportation system um, even if you're, or an aug- a major augmentation without running into just endless hurdles, um, at, at least at the endpoints in urban areas. I don't mean to be pessimistic about this. I'm optimistic. Yes, but mm-hmm. but I think it that uh, Jim has alluded a couple of times to the resiliency uh, parts of this bill, as you have, and you know resiliency is a number uh, is another way I, I think of simply uh, uh, talking about building transportation infrastructure that'll last a long time.
1: Mm-hmm.
2: So we you know tried to do that, but our ability to you know predict isn't perfect, and over time people do move around, and and the traffic patterns change. So it's great to think fifty years out, and I'm glad there are people that do that in the academic community first and foremost. But the, I think the fifty year window it makes sense primarily in in terms of building stuff that'll last fifty years, right? Um, and we're probably not going to be able to. Again, do mass, uh, a massive, uh, I wish on one level we could, but a massive new alternative to the interstate highway system just for trucks. Right. right. Um, but we can build highways that will last longer carrying the weight of the trucks, which has been an issue in this mm-hmm, country for mm-hmm, decades, mm-hmm. you know, the rate of deterioration of the roads. Mm-hmm. It's very boring kind of stuff on no, a level. But the, but the cost of maintaining but Exactly, it goes to the cost, it goes ultimately sometimes to roads or sections of roads actually having to be closed while you do emergency repairs. So it does matter, and it matters over decades. So I hope out of this bill there will be, at DOT first and foremost, a lot of attention paid to, the, to resiliency resiliency on that level is making sure that that what we're investing in is a long-term investment
0: Mm -hmm, mm -hmm. in
2: every way. I think think the idea of resilience, and
0: I love that you said earlier, whatever that means, right? Because resilience has so many different applications to it. Ultimately, the spend of a dollar from public funds needs to take on a new consciousness that is not only material resilience, ergo it lasts longer, But it also has to have an environmental resilience associated with it so that we're not trading the environment for long-lasting, dirty materials. And then thirdly, it has to have, and it's been a, you know, um, uh, the question is economic resilience. How do we create and put further pylons into our foundation as a U.S. economy to, to build an ongoing resilient economy? And I have to say it's it's extraordinary to watch this economy. Um, we went through this wild show of the of the uh, pandemic over this last 20, 22 months. And watching the US economy plummet and then find itself and start to come back is extraordinary. It shows that we have resilience built into our system, but we can't take that for granted. So every public dollar has to also be conscious that it's a part of building ongoing resilience to the economy
2: as well. And and we have to have a continuing consciousness of um, the importance of staying out of the way of the private sector, Mm -hmm. particularly in transportation. I have been around the transportation world on the federal level so long that uh, I was at DOT in the immediate aftermath of the passage in the late 1970s of deregulatory legislation for the airline industry, the trucking industry, the freight railroad industry, and in 1984, the the maritime shipping industry. And I think the point you just made about the unbelievable ability of our economy to bounce back after the initial lockdowns from the pandemic um, is very largely because of those policies that were adopted actually by uh, a Democratic Congress and a and, uh, Democratic president, Jimmy Carter. Mm-hmm. And then we Reaganites showed up in 1981, and we had to implement it, in effect. Mm-hmm. Uh, it was in stage one of being implemented, and there were people in Congress who— We're saying publicly they regretted they ever voted for airline deregulation because suddenly they didn't have the service to their hometown that they had had (laughs) when it was regulated (laughs) and they could influence the regulators. So I think that's a a hugely important variable here. Mm -hmm. And this country got that right beginning in the late 70s and early 80s. And we have preserved that flexibility. So I hope a part of the story going forward in addition to all the money on the federal level now available for infrastructure is a continuation of, of that fundamental understanding on the federal level of staying out of the way of the operators of our transportation Mm -hmm. systems, because that's what gives us the ability to bounce back like we did. And, and even with all the port congestion we've got and the the shortage of truck drivers, I, I am optimistic, frankly, that will self-correct. It's not self-correcting overnight. It can't, but, the, the ability, again, of the private sector to move with m- much more flexibility and, and be much more nimble often than a government can mm-hmm. makes me optimistic that, that that'll get sorted out to a substantial extent in, in the very near future. Um, so I just hope we we leave well enough alone when it comes to to those regulatory policies because they make all the difference.
0: That's uh, a, it's a fantastic statement. I want to circle back on that in just a second. But, you know, when I was talking about resiliences, material resilience and environmental resilience and economic resilience is also this front of mind idea of social resilience and becoming a society that, that recognizes that we have not built often social resilience in an equitable way across our country. And we have now seen that there, you know, as we watched the dynamics of 2020 and those things coming around. And I think of the massive spending in transportation over the many years, certainly the interstate system. And Jim Riley, you and I talked about how sometimes we would put highways places that would result in a separation of social Lines uh, that made it hard for people on this side of the highway to live, and made it wonderful for people on this side of the highway to live. And so, as we think about these, this spending, of course, that idea of creating more social cohesion and and resilience is a part of the discussion. the The other side uh, of coming back to what you were just saying, the U.S. is not known as a country that leads with public-private partnerships particularly in our space of architecture, engineering, construction, though we see it quite a bit north of the border in Canada. It's, it's kind of mainstream. Uh, what do we think about that? What do we think about PPP going forward, especially with this kind of money? You would think that it might be more attractive because when the public, when the private folk get involved, things get very, very responsible when
2: it comes to budgets that's true, and I think um, you're correct that we have struggled uh, as a matter of policy with that. And we struggled on the federal level, we've struggled um, on the state and local level. Um, I was involved quite a few years ago now, in the, in the late 90s, in an effort that was successful, in part, um, to open up opportunities for private investment in airports and the notion was to let airports be privately owned which is the case in western europe for example the resistance to that was very fierce and it was first and foremost from uh, local airport authorities and their boards Um, and certainly there was a lot of skepticism in congress but we did get what was called a pilot program that created a limited number of slots. And in this day and age, virtually every airport in this country gets federal aid. So that's how the federal government gets to play in this space about whether you should be able to get to the point of having airports owned by private interest. What was amazing was after the pilot program was enacted and it created a half dozen slots that that communities and cooperation with private interests could come in and say, okay, we want to do a hundred year lease on our airport. We want to sell the airport. The SWAT sat there unused mm. for years because the local communities that owned the airports had no interest <laughs> in attracting that kind of private investment or losing control, in their view, over how the airport was operated, even though there might be great advantages, arguably, to that. There were some false starts, but they were false starts. And finally, just a, like two or three years ago, the uh, airport in San Juan, Puerto Rico, did a long-term lease agreement with a private operator. And by every account, it's been a great success. The airport has been modernized and operates uh, more efficiently. But it's striking still to me that the resistance was was and is so intense not to fool around with the status quo, mm-hmm. which is largely, in, with such facilities, ownership, by public entities on the state and local level. And that's just, just what it is. I mean, that's the political landscape.
0: Well, what about
2: on the construction
0: side of the development of infrastructure that these projects should be delivered in a PPP as opposed to, Jim was talking about operating? What Any thoughts on that, Jim Riley? I, I agree with you. There's the desire,
3: the, the umbrella desire to produce better results faster for less money and that PPP often can do that. I, I don't see in this bill a, a major shift though towards that. Uh, it's just, I just don't read it in the text. Mm-hmm. So, But the opportunity that the bill will provide as the money flows through to states, if some states choose to go that route, I think we may see that in certain parts of the country, but not in others.
2: But, but there's not a, a mandate laid out here that I've seen. The more important dynamic, I think, on surface transportation mm-hmm. is that there are some examples, and we're sitting in the middle of one right now in Washington, D.C., on on the highway side that are working by everybody's uh, agreement, consensus agreement pretty much, um, extremely well. And those are the uh, HOV lanes that you can also, as a single driver, pay to use. Yes, and those are have been built in in this uh, region and are operated by Transurban, based in Australia, and they have built uh, very successful lanes as a as an add-on to the Capital Beltway in Virginia. They are now extending those lanes quite far south down Interstate ninety-five. Hmm. Um, there is a proposal that is moving very actively that. Could include such lanes in maryland for the northern part of the dc beltway so i think you know other parts of the country see that they can come and talk to local officials about it they can talk to the builder and operator about sure um and over time uh that may be on surface transportation highway transportation the the way that we open the door a bit more for private investment
0: to these partnerships yeah
2: and I think back to the airports. I mean, I think the fact that San Juan seems to be going so well may cause one or more communities, again over time, and and the airlines that serve those communities to to perhaps look at that. I mean, a lot of a lot of our major airports are very well run today. Mm-hmm. So there's no sort of political if it ain't broke, pressure. Don't fix it. Yeah, yeah exactly. Right. <laughs> so, and and the airlines are understandably suspicious about you know somebody else going to come in there and try to make a profit off the facility that's now a public facility, and that may make their fees go up so right so again it's striking how long it takes for certain ideas to play out and sometimes they just are not accepted but the private sector is so creative over time that uh, hopefully they'll keep coming with with such ideas
0: with better ideas yeah well jim burnley and jim riley thank you for joining me today it's been a real pleasure enjoyed it
2: very much thank you
1: Thank you for joining us for this edition of This is Design Intelligence. The producer is Laura Spells. The sound engineer is Jared Canabel. This has been a DI Media Group production.